0: Two hundred and fifty years and one week ago, on the first of January seventeen seventy three, Roy, do you remember that? No. Sorry. Joke. <laughs> on the first of when King David wants and longs to build God a house. Remember, there's just been the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, no temple yet. And David wants to build God. A, he says, look, I have this palatial dwelling where I live, but Lord, you have nowhere except a tent, as it were. And God, through the prophet Nathan, comes to him and says, no, 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 your a house. Not just a house now where you live or where your son inherits and builds a temple, but a dynasty of kings, a house of that sort, a royal household forever and ever. The line of David in which, of course, the Messiah Jesus himself was born. And as this word which David didn't fully comprehend, but nevertheless was blown away by. As this word came to him, we have recorded in 1 Chronicles 17 his prayer. And he says, oh Lord, who am I? And who are my family that you should have brought us this far? He was just struck by this awesome, amazing grace of God. The man who preached on that text was John Newton, and he wrote the words of that most familiar of his hymns, "Amazing Grace." How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me! I once was lost, but now am found; was blind, but now I see. He wrote it for that sermon. It wasn't even sung; it was just words came a hymn later. John Newton, as many of you will know, had been a, in his own words and view, a notorious sinner. Press-ganged into the Navy. He'd eventually become a captain, but not just any captain, the captain of a slave ship. He became a slave trader, and even when he stopped captaining, He still invested in the slave trade until God miraculously broke into his life, took hold of him and saved him. And so when he looked at these words of David who said, Who am I and what is my family that you should have brought us this far? He could see himself. Who am I, God, and what is my family that you should have poured out such amazing grace Can, can you put yourself in those words too? You may not have been a slave trader. I hope you haven't been a slave trader. But neither have you not been a sinner. And equally, we all need saving. And unless we can honestly stand before God and look him in the eye and say, amazing grace, it's all about you, God. You have saved me. It is not my cleverness or holiness or goodness or even my faith. It is your grace from start to finish. Why do I make this point at the beginning of a series when we're looking at the book of Ephesians? It's because it strikes me that it's all about Paul reflecting on the amazing grace of God. I'm going to read you... Section of chapter one. Just one sentence of chapter one. The trouble is, the sentence goes from verse three to verse fourteen. In the Greek, it's one single complex sentence. I'm going to read you that in the New Living Translation, and I'd like you to listen and just hear the word grace and the theme of grace. Remember, grace. God's initiative. Tricky stuff, but true stuff about God choosing us in advance. About God taking hold of us. We won't, we won't get to it until next time, chapter two, but you know, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this too, faith is a gift from God, not from yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Even the the faith we exercise in trusting in God is a gift from God in the first place to do it. It's It's an amazing complex truth, isn't it? God's wonderful choice of us in advance, it says, and you'll hear it, even before he made the world, God who dwells outside of time and space Before ever time was created, God saw you and me in his heart and chose us in advance to be his people. Not just his people like servants, but it says, chose us to be his adopted children. Oh, wow. Then it says, and having believed... He gave us his Holy Spirit to put a seal of ownership upon us, to mark us out as belonging to him now. It gets better and better, this grace. It isn't like, wow. That's why John Newton was like, amazing grace, amazing. Right, I'm going to read it. We, we even have it on the screen. Thank you, Neil. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance And he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ... He identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Amen. Do we praise and glorify him for the truth of those words? Do we? Two or three of us do. (laughs) Do we praise and glorify the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the truth of those words? Now, come on, folks. Do we or don't we? Make up your mind. Amen. Now, really. I mean, if this doesn't grab your heart and spirit, then come out for prayer at the end quick. Please. Last time I spoke here, one or two of you might remember, um, before Christmas, <laughs> um, I'm, I showed a diagram up there of three concentric circles and said a good way to read Scripture is to think of the, the inner circle as the individual person, whoever that happens to be. On that occasion, when I was speaking, it was Mary uh, uh, receiving the news from the angel that she would bear Jesus, uh, her son. So, so, so the story, it, as it were, in Scripture starts with the individual, but that individual is part of the greater circle around them, the people of God. So you go from the person to the people of God, and even then that's not the end. Around all of the people of God, whether that's the Jews of the Old Testament or the Jews and Gentiles of the New Testament church, us included today, we are part of the plan of God, the person, the people, the plan. Now, in Ephesians, and probably in most of the uh, epistles, it's exactly the same pattern, but it seems to me it's done back to front or the other way around, rather than starting with the individual and then the people and the plan. Here, the Apostle Paul, in, in Ephesians, he mentions no individuals from Ephesus whatsoever, even though he spent years there. In the book of Acts, on, one, on just one single occasion, he stayed there three years, so he knew plenty of people there. And yet he doesn't mention any of them in this epistle, probably because written from house arrest or prison in Rome, it was sent to more than one place through a guy. The only individual mentioned at the end is a man called Tychicus, who brought the letter to them and probably took it to Colossae and some other locations as well. So it wasn't just specifically to one church only. But Paul here in this letter, he starts with, the plan of God, the plan of God being that ultimately the kingdom of God, this kingdom that we started with John Newton preaching about, the dynasty of kings coming through in the line of Jesus, King Jesus, whose kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. But this kingdom, we are told here in chapter one of Ephesians, is one where he is king and ruler over Everything, everything is put underneath him. Things in heaven, the heavenly realms, that phrase is mentioned in Ephesians more than once and that's the only place in the New Testament that phrase is used. The heavenly realms, everything comes under King Jesus and everything on earth. He is king, he is Lord. This kingdom, glorious kingdom of righteousness and eternity to come of which you and I will be part if we have put our faith in Jesus. A renewed heaven, a renewed earth. Wow, we will reign with him. Hallelujah. That's the plan. There's more to it than that. It's just that I don't understand it. So I won't try and tell you. Okay, the plan. That king Jesus is king over everything and we share in that reign with him in a renewed earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And as part of that, he then talks about, from the plan to the people, he then talks about the new humanity, we'll call it, or many people call it, that's referred to in Ephesians, the new humanity that the gospel of Jesus and the reality of his salvation brings about. This new humanity is now both Jew and Gentile together, united in Christ, forming this new humanity ruled over by King Jesus in which we begin to share this experience of united being united with Christ now, looking forward to the full inheritance when he returns and the kingdom is fully brought in. So we go from the plan to the people, the new humanity of Jew and Gentile believers together, and then we come through to the person and later in the epistle we have all the wonderful <laughs> wonderful practical as you said theo the, the sort of practical nitty gritty things that you think all of that is like mind-blowingly eternal and huge and then paul in the same epistle says oh and by the way don't tell dirty jokes he does he says that in the epistle you know it goes down to sort of nitty gritty ways in which you and i should live so the gospel story in the macro sense, has to shape and control my story and your story, our lives' story in the micro sense. And that's how the epistle is split up exactly. We have it broken into six chapters. The first three are about the plan and the people, and the second three are about the person and how we live, our relationships together, our unity in the body of Christ, Um, how we live in families, uh, how husband and wives relate, parents and children, Um, slaves and masters then in that situation. Yeah, and then all in the context of spiritual warfare. This reality in which we live, that we don't fight against people, flesh and blood. Our fight is against demonic principalities and powers. Whether we see them or realize that they're there or not, it is the reality and you cannot escape it. But the link point is chapter four, verse one. Three chapters have gone by and then you get to the word, therefore. Therefore. In the light of all of that, people of God, therefore, this is how you should live. Live out according to your calling, because this is the high calling of all the people of God. Amen. Now, the link. The link, chapter 1, has two two halves to it as well. The bit I've read to you, verses 3 to 14... One sentence is praise, isn't it? Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Praise, praise, praise. The praise of his glorious grace. That phrase comes up three times in those verses. The praise, the praise, the pra- is praise. And the second part of the chapter one is prayer. And Paul, we won't have time to read it now. Read read it when you get home today. Read it, I Thoroughly, strongly, recommend you to read the second half, as well as the rest of Ephesians. Read the second half of chapter 1. The prayer. Paul says, I've not stopped praying for you. Isn't that interesting? That he's stated all these eternal truths. But do you know what? Someone just, like I'm doing now, someone just telling you the truth is one thing. But someone praying that for you. Someone say, I, I so want you to grasp this and know this for yourself. That I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? That's why it's good to pray for one another. It's good to receive prayer from others. We need it. And what Paul prays, he says, I pray that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know God better. Huh, I want... Can you pray that for me, please? Pray that I'll have the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. Who else would like that? Pray for them. Come on, out the front. (laughs) What a great prayer. You think, how do I pray for my brothers and sisters? Pray that. Lord, give them your spirit. Fill them with wisdom and revelation so they can know you better. But there's more than that. Then he says, and I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. That's a uh, testimony from Phil uh, earlier on in the meeting. He, he used that, that kind of phrase. He said as he was being challenged about his backslidden state, if I may say, um, th- then the eye is like God opened his heart. The eyes of his heart were enlightened. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that God will enlighten you, give you revelation to know three things. The hope of your calling, the glory of your inheritance, and the greatness of God's power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Who wants those things as well? Pray those things for one another. Pray those things for me. I'll pray them for you. Lord, open my eyes. Lord, I'm so dull, I'm so blind. Once I was blind, but now I see. Oh, Lord. And the link through all of this is the Holy Spirit. The link between the truth of God that's from before the foundation of the world right through to the kingdom of God that will come forever and ever. The link for us to know our part in it and experience a foretaste of it is the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14 again. Whoa, that was good. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Apostle Paul here calls the Holy Spirit three things. Not that there are three spirits, but the the threefold identity of the Holy Spirit. First of all, he calls him a promise, promised long ago. In the original Greek, it's a a noun, a promise. Promised long ago. For example, just quickly, in Ezekiel, the, the prophet, God speaks through the prophet years, hundreds of years in advance of Pentecost, he says, I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees. In Joel chapter 2, the more more familiar one that is quoted on the day of Pentecost by Peter, Joel 2, God says through Joel, In those days I will pour out my Spirit even on servants, men and women alike. And then Jesus himself, before he ascends back to the Father, he says this to his disciples in Luke 24. He says, And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. Oh, you see the promise is following through. And in Acts chapter 2, when it actually happens for the first time that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter in his sermon says this, pointing to the crowd, each of you, he says, must repent of your sins, turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you have received forgiveness for your sins then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and to your children and even to the Gentiles. It's for everyone. The promise of the Spirit wasn't just for them. It's also for us. So first of all, a promise. Secondly, the Holy Spirit here, there, there. it says, he identified you ha- as his own. That's a bit of a loose translation. In the original Greek, it's the, the, he, gave you, he, g- he gave you the seal. The seal. He sealed you with his promised Holy Spirit. He put the seal upon you. You know those old-fashioned seals that went on, letters and things? Um, it showed a mark of ownership. He sealed, he identified you as his own is exactly what it means, but it's literally a seal. A seal, a mark of ownership. We belong to God. He gives you his Holy Spirit so that you don't have to think, well, am I a Christian or aren't I? Do I belong to God or don't I? It's not just like, "Um, can someone tell me again, am I in or am I not in? We receive the Holy Spirit who tells us inwardly, you are a child of God and his spirit witnessing with my spirit causes me to cry out in love and worship, Abba, Father. Yeah? That's why we need the Holy Spirit so that we no longer think, oh, I've woken up today and I don't feel like a Christian anymore. It doesn't depend on that depends on the seal of ownership, we belong. We are adopted by God. We were sinners, like John Newton. We realized we were beloved sinners, God so loved us, and then we realize when the Holy Spirit comes to us that we are now beloved children. We're beloved children of God. Oh, hallelujah, that is so important. That's exactly what happened to me when I received the Holy Spirit years ago, an overwhelming sense of, wow, I belong to God. <laughs> and the third, so we've got promise, we've got seal, and lastly, we've got deposit. Guarantee. The Spirit is God's guarantee. The word is a deposit, arabona in, in Greek, and modern Greek, arabon, is a an engagement ring, a deposit, something that promises something yet to come. But this is stronger than an engagement ring. This is unbreakable. (laughs) This is guaranteed. You see, it's a pledge. It's a down payment. It's the first installment of something. It's the guarantee of full future inheritance. It's also a foretaste. It is an experience It's an experience of the fullness yet to come. Those who have tasted of the goodness of God. You see, we have this foretaste that gives us an appetite and desire for more, but it is only part of it. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We read in 1 Corinthians. You see, we can't imagine the fullness, but we have a foretaste of it. And that foretaste is the real thing, but it's not the whole thing. Amen? Do you get that? That's why we need the Holy Spirit, because it's not about just believing, it's about experiencing. I'm not pushing that too far. If you read Acts chapter 19, when Paul went, this same Paul went to Ephesus, sorry, he went back to Ephesus, He'd been there once before. He went back to Ephesus. He came across a group of men. It says there are about 12 in total. Interesting number, isn't it? 12 disciples, 12 men there. And you know what he asked them? Paul, for the first time he meets them, and he says this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he expected them to be able to answer that. And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you get baptized with? Well, we were baptized in the baptism of John the Baptist. Well, that's not good enough, says Paul. You need to be baptized into the name of Jesus. So they, 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 they took it seriously. They got baptized again. If you were christened as a little baby or whatever, that's not good enough. It's not wrong or bad. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus yourself. They were baptized in the name of Jesus and after they were baptized, Paul laid his hands upon them and they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues and prophesied all of them. They knew then that they had received the Holy Spirit. So when we say, did you receive the Holy Spirit, it's not like ish, kind of, maybe, mm, sort of. It's either yes or no because it's demonstrable Unexperiential, experiential. You know, you know, you know. Speaking in tongues, prophesying. These are all indications, but not not sort of strict rules for it, as it were. But you know. So, have you received the Holy Spirit? if you haven't the promise and the gift is available for you all today so come and drink